people, welcome to Private Equity Laid Bear. Today we're going to talk about secondaries. Secondaries is a booming market in private equity. It started really to boom 10 years ago and it's going from strength to strength. So very important for us to understand how it works. And we have Saloni with us today to tell us about how this market works. So Saloni, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. And please, can you start with telling us a bit about your extraordinary uh, career path uh, uh, so far um, into the world of private equity. Thank you. I'd be delighted to. Um, well, I've been operating in this space for over 23 years. Um, and I started off life at Linklaters. Uh, I trained with them. I qualified with them. I, I spent part of my time in Singapore thinking I wanted to be a project finance lawyer and certainly not a, an investment funds lawyer. Um, I then, can you, can you uh, tell us the difference between the two? Um, absolutely. I mean, uh, project finance is more sort of what I would consider to be infra. Uh, looking at the financing aspects, it's more leverage orientated compared to what I was in. It was part of the corporate practice, which was certainly very much your bread and butter M&A. Um, and certainly when I came back to London, um, while we had a small funds team at Linklater's, it was certainly not very sexy to be a funds lawyer. Nobody really wanted to be a funds lawyer, in fact. And so a fund lawyer funds is, is, is like doing the, the limited partnership agreements. Exactly. It was somebody who worked on investment funds, as opposed to investment trusts were regulated. It was the private market angle. Um, and, and why, sorry, why thing. nobody wanted to be a, a fund lawyer? Uh, simply because it just wasn't, it wasn't seen to be as exciting, perhaps, as corporate M&A. You know, we had some amazing partners at Linklaters and everybody wanted to work for them. Um, and because the, the fund space was less known, less popular, um, it just didn't get great press. Um, so it's quite amusing now that I, where I've ended up and a lot of my, my friends and colleagues from my time at Linklaters do, do still rib me about the fact that I'm actually now a fund, um, a fund lawyer. Um, but I then joined ship, uh, a jump ship to um, uh, a US firm called Debevoise, and uh, the US players have come to London. Yeah, they're very and famous in private equity, right? They're a very big player. Yeah, they are indeed now. And I joined them in 1999. I was the first English lawyer, and we only had, I think, about 10 people in the office. Yeah, that's um, amazing. That's always amazing. good to be the first in like a, well, a, a firm that just like grew very fast. You say that because when I arrived, I think my first day, being a corporate lawyer, and you know how we clear on what we do and what we don't do, I ended up looking at a taxi. And uh, normally, when you're in a large firm, you would, you know, you literally, in those days, you ring it upstairs. We didn't have email in those days properly. So you would call your colleagues upstairs to say, for the tax department, this is for you. Um, but of course, it was something in a small office that you had to do everything. And I was part of this mindset, the managing partner at the time, a chap called Jim Kiernan, who an awful lot of respect for, had always said in his mind, the, the benefits of being a good lawyer is somebody who is a generalist, who is not scared of um, being put into an uncomfortable situation and can have the skill set to apply their mind in the right way. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a corporate lawyer, project finance, or financing lawyer. You should be able to deal with all these issues at the same time. And, and how, how does being a lawyer brings you to like the secondary markets and, and being a specialist of a secondary market? What, what does a lawyer do that relates to secondary markets? It feels like, you know, secondary markets in private equities is like the secondary markets in, in public equity in a sense, right? So the stock market that everybody is familiar with is a secondary market for 
public equity. So the secondary market we talk about in private equity is the same thing. It's, it's, it's a marketplace to exchange shares of funds, of closed-end funds, the same way as on the stock exchange, we exchange shares in some publicly traded closed-end funds. Um, so we think of this as like traders, as finance people. We don't think of this market being um, something for lawyers to play a big part in. Mm, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I always used to look at this as very much as the jumble sale of the private equity world. Um, you know, private equity, as you know, is the most illiquid market in the world. And, and bearing in mind that these, these, fir- these um, private equity funds will live on average for around 15.2 years, the industry is just illiquid. Um, that's why we have the secondary market. Um, and as you know, I think as you mentioned at, at the beginning, it's had a slow, a slow start slow burn to start with and it was only you know at the end of the 1980s only had a handful of secondaries um in the 1990s the market started to sort of pick up pace and develop a little bit but it was actually then another 28 years later before transaction volume hit 10 billion and that was back in 2006. But apparently so, it was because the, the GPs were reluctant to have their their things being traded and and so because they didn't want right. people to know about their information like because if you want to trade you need to know a bit what's in the bag right and so apparently well, the gps didn't want anyone to know what was in the bag and so they were very reluct- reluctant for these exchanges and then somehow there was a mindset that was changed around the financial crisis absolutely i mean you know in, in those days if you did a gp led one you're absolutely you right. have to explain exactly. what's a gp led uh, exactly i mean what i mean by that is when you've got um, well, there are different types of deals that are sort of bundled under that term. So when we run through those, you get things that what we call a staple secondary, for example. So you've got an investor in a fund selling its interest um, in, in fund one to a buyer, and then the buyer makes a second commitment, a primary commitment, as we call it, to fund two. Also under that umbrella term is a fund recap. So you've got a fund that sells existing portfolio investments to a new fund that's managed by the same GP and then funded by third party investors who are coming in. And the existing investors who are there have the option to either cash in, exit completely, or roll their existing investment into a new fund, or it could be a combination of the two. But what you just called recap, isn't it what Mm -hmm. is a GP led? Exactly. And this is all part of, this is a problem. The GP led is such a wide, wide term. Also included in that bucket is a tender offer, for example. If you've got, you know, um, new investors coming in and they decide to make an offer for all the interest in one fund from existing investors. Um, And again, the existing investors can either cash out or, or stay in the fund. And those terms are likely to have changed as well with a third party buyer. And, and would you call, call that a GP led? I'd also call that within what I would call structured transactions, GP led transactions. So structured transactions and GP led is synonymous. Exactly, exactly. And I think within that sort of umbrella is also preferred equity, which has become very, very popular at the moment. And it's really what what I would call a secondary pathway account. So you get an immediate payout from a third party preferred equity buyer, and they will get future profits from the fund's portfolio, but only once the buyer has been paid out. So what it does is that it essentially gives liquidity. So you don't have to dispose of any of the assets. So everything stays the same underneath at the fund level. Um, and so it's not just limited to fund level applications because it's 
frequently used at sponsor and LP level to provide liquidity. Um, and because it's flexible, it's widely understood across the industry um, that it's, it's likely to grow in the coming years. And it's certainly become more prevalent in, you know, in, in the current market. Yeah, we would have a separate podcast for, for these preferred equity or derivatives um, mm -hmm. uh, markets on part of a secondary market. Um, but, but going back to this question about why, why are lawyers so present on the secondary market in private equity and, and, and not in public equity? You, you know, there is no legal work involved or very little if I'm buying shares on the secondary market for a publicly listed closed end fund. So isn't it the case that the reason why it is very much of a lawyer thing or lawyers play a big role on the private equity secondary market is that it is a lot to do with how big these limited partnership agreements are and how complex they are. And so the fact that then changing LPs becomes something that legally is fairly heavy because you have this 200 pages agreement, et cetera. And so it's, it's not a trivial affair. Mm, absolutely right. I mean, these are complex agreements, as you know, limited partnership agreements can be you know, 80 to 200 pages long. You're absolutely right. Um, and there's so much more involved because you're having to look at the terms of those agreements. You may be negotiating separate agreements with a third party buyer. Um, not only that, but bear in mind that we've got a real fundamental problem here with a GP led and it's a, it's a conflict issue, conflict at the heart of GP led. Um, and you know, there's issues around transparency and disclosure because existing LPs will have three basic options that they're offered. You know, they can either stay still um, and keep the terms that you've got or partially sell your position or completely exit. But you know, there's a clear misalignment of interest between the general partner, the existing LP and the new buyer. And it all, all falls on the value of the assets in the fund. And so yeah, that, and, and, that, and so the accountants play a big role too, I guess, no? Or the accountants absolutely. don't really play a role because it's just down to the, apparently there is a sponsor, right? There is a secondary fund sponsor that then decides on how much these stakes are worth. Exactly that. And you need to get a valuation for the commitments that are being sold. So often you, there'll be a competitive auction process, which will then price the assets relative to that. But, you know, you, obviously everyone's looking for the best price. Um, and so, you know, existing investors also need to know that the price that's being put forward by the GP is the right one. Um, so you often will find that there has to be a fairness opinion given, that that, that opinion, opinion as to the valuation of those assets is right. Yeah, I've been, um, in, a, I've been in a situation where um, there, there, there was like a, a GP-led transaction where basically the GP turns to us and say, um, I buy back, you know, you've been in my fund for like 12 years. Um, it's not doing very well. Um, but um, here, if you want to get out, it's possible. Uh, I'm, I buy you out at 70% of NAV. Um, and if you don't want that, you can restart fresh in a new fund of mine that will last another 12 years, and then it will be a one-to-one. -one. So either I give you 100 like voucher, right? 100 euros voucher to put in my new fund and you are with me for another 12 years, or I give you $70 or, or 70 euros on what I told you was worth 100 and then you can go away. It, it feels a bit like a hold up, especially like after 12 years and, and the GP not doing that well. Absolutely, and it's a really tricky problem because, because of the inherent conflict. Um, and also bear in mind, LPs, these deals are really data, what I call data heavy. You know, um, 
you know, they will get, investors will get access to all kinds of data on the fund, its portfolio, the valuation, et cetera. Um, there'll have to be NDAs that they're entered into. Limited partners will have to engage with their own counsel to review all the terms to make sure they're comfortable with it, both on a commercial level and at a legal level. Um, and so you, you need to get that insight into the fund's performance and, and get the LPs comfortable that you're, you're getting a fair price. Um, and so sometimes you find that, you know, it is, it, there is so much legal documentation that some LPs just don't have the bandwidth to go through all of that amount. Um, and so that's a very difficult, tricky decision, an investment decision that the LP thought they'd never have to make. But that's certainly where the issues come up, which is why it's so legal heavy compared to what, as you said before, in terms of the public market. Yeah. Um, and, and, and some other GP-led ones that we were afraid would happen as well in, in, with this pandemic was when, when the markets were collapsing, people were thinking, oh, my God, like all these private equity funds, they're not going to be in the money. They're not going to earn any carry. And so they need to do some GP-led secondary transactions to reset the carry. So it's like the fund is year number seven. Uh, it's not going to be in the carry. So what we're going to do is that now that the fund has sunk, um, has sunk, we are going to then do a transaction, a secondary transaction, like buying back everybody at like 50% of NAV so that we can reset the carry. Because if you rebuy, you buy, you offer everyone to recommit at 50% of the current NAV, you're effectively resetting your, your huddle rate at a much lower level, right? You're saying, okay, the price went down now. So from now on, if I get 8%, then I get, uh, uh, if I get 8% hurdle, then I take 20% of the profits. So that, that felt very odd to me, but to some people, uh, I've heard some lawyers talking about that and they were talking like this was the most natural thing ever. I think it's which, it depends on which side you're sitting, doesn't it? And I, look, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it's difficult to follow in terms of a recess of carry. And I understand that completely from an investor's perspective. But they're also, look, you've got to look at this as well. I mean, GP-led, I mean, we're also seeing, for example, you know, single asset transactions, for example, you know, where you've got a company that needs more capital. You haven't got much time left on, on, on the fund terms. And so what you're basically doing is allowing the GP to manage the same asset with more time and more money. And so you're giving, what the market is doing is giving an additional tool to hold on to a really great asset um, to get a better exit. And, and that's why I do think these sorts of deals, and they're all very nuanced, they're all very bespoke. We will certainly see more of them in the future. Um, and anything that can be sold, you know, sponsor to sponsor is likely, gained, is, is, likely uh, is a likely candidate for a single asset secondary, which is a, is a big change in the market. And so these GP-led, you're right, I mean, they bring in inherent conflicts of interest. They're incredibly data heavy. They're very legal heavy in terms of the document review but they become far more mainstream as have these sorts of single asset deals. And I think we're going to see much larger, more sort of syndicated transactions coming along. So um, another question I had now, then if we move to like the non-GP led one, so when it's an LP um, just selling to another LP, um, mm. do you think it's more difficult now to op obtain the GP consent? I said earlier that, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, it looked like the GPs would always almost say no. And then now it looks like they're always cool about it because themselves are doing transactions like, you know, the GP led ones. So it doesn't mean it's like trivial now to get the, the consent of a GP. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier today than maybe it was 10 years ago. 
um, because it's simply because the secondary market has been driven by, by the LPs wanting to sell. And every transaction, as you know, pursuant to the partnership agreement will need general partner consent. Um, uh, and that's, that's an absolute requirement. And obviously there's a big difference if the interests are larger and if it's certainly more strategic to the GP, hence the GP-led, um, you know, the GP is going to have uh, a vested interest. Um, but quite clearly, GPs will want to have a say as to who the prospective buyers are. And, you know, we've certainly seen provisions, for example, where, you know, um, they will say that we're not happy for you to transfer if it's seen to be a competitor. As to who makes that determination is completely in the sole discretion of the GP. So they do retain control. Um, but I do think it's now a lot easier. What we are seeing, however, is that with that GP consent, they can, the GP can certainly add on any conditions that it likes. And we're certainly seeing more staple transactions coming along. And by staple, what I mean again, is that asking um, a third party buyer, not only to come into, in order to get the consent to come into the fund, they have to make a primary commitment to their new fundraising. And given that fundraising is quite tricky at the moment, certainly for new managers, you know, that, that's key for, for many, many general partners, not so positive for, for third party buyers. So maybe it, it, uh, I'm going to do it again here to try to summarize a bit the key vocabularies, uh, to, so the key pieces of vocabulary to, so that people are clear about all these names because they're quite difficult. So there are two types of secondary transactions. There is GP-led, but we can also call structured transactions and there is fund interest transactions. Fund interest transactions is just like the stock exchange, you exchange pieces of a fund between two willing investors, uh, two LPs, and it's usually intermediated by um, a specialist firm uh, instead of a stock exchange. And then again, the LP, the GP-led or structured transactions in something else. Within GP-led and structured transactions, there are these four types. So can you Again, quickly say what are the four types of GP-led and then talk about different types of fund interest transactions. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, so you've got the GP-led and structured transactions. So staple secondaries where you're selling uh, an interest in fund one to a buyer and then the buyer makes a primary commitment to fund two. And as I mentioned, we're often seeing this when a third party buyer comes to the GP um, asking for their consent to buy into the fund and that GP will often say, I'll do so on the basis that you make a commitment, a primary commitment to my new fund next year. Yeah, so this is staple um, transaction was what I was just talking about that happened that I witnessed where somebody turns to us and say, you know, you can get out of this fund number one of mine and but at 70, uh, at 100% if you go and meet my other funds, otherwise they give you 70%. Exactly that. And okay. just as a, a, an interesting aside, last year during the pandemic, as you know, a lot of investment activity just stopped and halted while everybody just looked and, and sort of waited. Um, we had one particular uh, staple transaction. So they'd already completed the secondary part. They'd already sold the interest in fund one to a buyer. The, the primary commitment is just that. It's a soft commitment. It's a letter written to the GP to say, we will commit when you raise your funds. Um, and when it came to it, the buyer then turned around to the GP and said, look, when we want to delay our commitment because we're not really sure where we are with things at the moment with the pandemic. Um, and probably for the first time in, to, to, in my experience, we had a GP threatening litigation um, because okay. this particular 
particular buyer was looking to renege on that that primary commitment. So, you know, GPs do take them very seriously and they are an obligation. Okay, so that's what's the first um, type of GP-led, staple mm-hmm. secondaries. And the second type is fund recapitalization you talked about as well. Exactly. So fund recap, um, that's where an existing fund sells its portfolio investments to a new fund. And then that's managed out by the same GP, but partly funded by new third-party So this buyers. was a bit in the press recently when, when people said, you know, they, they sell to themselves, right? So there were some headlines saying... GPs now invented a new way to exit portfolio companies, buying it from themselves. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and, and then what the existing investors have is that they can either receive cash proceeds um, or roll their investment um, in the existing fund into an investment in the new fund. Or it could be, for example, it's sometimes a combination of the two. Um, so, yes, those, those are fund recaps. Okay. And then we and then also get the, the tender offers, um, okay. which is where the third-party investors acquire interest in the fund from the existing investors. So they're essentially making an offer. You're making a bid to all the investors in the fund. And that process is managed by the GP. So you make your offer to the GP. The GP then negotiates it on behalf of all the existing investors or basically serves it up on the table to say, we have reviewed the situation, we've been in an auction process, and we think this particular buyer is giving us the best price, and we believe they are a great buyer for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, and that's a tender offer. And then the fourth type of GP-led was this preferred equity, and, and that's the one I said we will do like a separate podcast a- about. Um, so just in, in, in a couple of words, what are these preferred equity ones? Sure. And that's, again, what I term as sort of a halfway house. So an investor, you will get an immediate payout from the third-party buyer, and you'll receive uh, future profits from the fund's portfolio, but only once the buyer has received their money first. But so I, I don't quite understand why you call this GP-led, because I, I, I thought this was a deal between, you know, someone else, like, you know, a separate firm that says, uh, ULP, I'm offering you this deal where I give you, you know, a certain amount of money now, and then we, we, we share future profits, etc. I didn't think it was like GP-led as a transaction. Mm, no, it is very much led by the GP. And it's also, what it's doing is giving liquidity um, for the portfolio company. So it's led by the GP. Okay. And then we have the fund interest transactions. So you've got, again, so under this bucket, what I would term a single interest. So you're just transferring uh, one limited partnership interest in a fund to a third party buyer. And again, you need GP consent for that. Or it could be a package of interest, portfolio interest. So you're selling one or two um, interests to one or more buyers, in fact. So um, you would have you know, purchase and sale agreements not only with one buyer, it could be with three buyers and there could be multiple assets that you're selling. And again, you'll need GP consent for each and every one of those assets that you're selling. Yeah, um, and, and, and get, when we say so I, interest here, we mean a, a, a stake in a fund. Exactly. So limited partnership interest in a fund, yes. And then, then you, you, get, you, um, you, you said that co-investments would be fund interest transactions, but these are not really secondary transactions, is it? They're not, but they, 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 it's housed outside of the main fund, a co-investment, and it's normally um, concentrated in one particular asset normally with a no-see, no-carry basis. Um, but again, I mean, they're very similar to when the GPs move one asset to another vehicle. Um, and so 
in, in some ways, yes, they are they are part of those sort of secondary process in terms of co-investment. Okay. And then is there any other categories you would say within the fund interest transactions? No, I mean, as I mentioned, I think single asset sales, but again, they are very much, again, similar to co-investments, but we're looking at one particular asset um, and allowing the GP to manage out that asset with more time and more money. Um, and so th those are certainly becoming more prevalent as well. Okay. And um, so, so before we, we go, maybe a word about how was the market this year in 2020, the secondary market, and, and what do you think the future would hold? Gosh, I know. What a year uh, 2020 was. I mean, look, and as I mentioned, earlier last year, March, April, we, thought, we saw a dramatic drop in, in market activity. And that was clearly triggered by the pandemic. Um, third and fourth quarters, we, got, we had a very strong rebound. And obviously that was driven by what was happening in the public markets and, and, and AVs. And so I do think the secondary market has fared incredibly well during the pandemic. Um, and obviously, as people will realize, um, you know, it's caused certain types of transactions to grow to prominence, um, but also certain sectors such as, you know, tech, digital, um, you know, consumer, retail, leisure, all those sorts of sectors have become much more in focus. Um, and so in terms of, you know, where do I think we're going? You know, the secondary transactions of, of the private equity market are still relatively small, but there are so many opportunities now for portfolio managers. You know, we've had strong returns. Um, it allows managers to essentially reshape their portfolios that have been struggling. But it also allow, allows LPs to come to the table to do that, um, or even to sell for liquidity reasons, you know, for their own benefit. Um, and so I do think there'll be other asset classes, such as private credit, starting to take advantage. So I, I do think there's going to be a growth in terms of diversity of transactions. I think there'll be more innovation through creative structures, preferred equity, financing coming into the space, because simply because they provide solutions to both GPs and LPs in a very efficient way. So I think overall, the outlook's very encouraging. And for the, the people who are studying right now, or like MBA students and the like, looking into um, moving maybe in, into positions for the second, like dealing with the secondary market, any, any career advice and in particular, any kind of mistakes you see rookies making when they come into that space? Anything, any tips you would have? No, I think if you, it really depends. I mean, if you're, you're coming into the space um, to get involved, I mean, you, you can get involved at so many angles. You can get involved from the legal side in terms of being, you know, the lawyers acting. You can get you know, involved in terms of acting for a fund manager. You can get involved acting for the advisors. All of these parties are absolutely key um, to getting these sorts of deals. And the more exposure you get, the more opportunities you get um, in order to collaborate on these sorts of transactions, it, it doesn't really matter whether it's from the GP side, the LP side, or even from the, the advisor's side. I think it's really important. Um, you know, and I, and I do think all of those parties are going to be heavily involved. I would recommend that, you know, um, you, you get versed in understanding not only the terminology, how these structures work, but look very closely at how these deals have evolved. Look at the structures, because I think that's really where it's going to be. You know, what is key, what is driving the market right now is the ability for, you know, the GPs, the lawyers, intermediaries to, to talk to clients, talk to clients about offering liquidity solutions, being creative, 
um, and looking at structures in a different way. So I do think this is a market that's really going to grow. And also, I think that that it has been mainly a U.S. and U.K. thing. That we and and then also rather like the secondary market has been mostly quit for leverage buyout funds. And so it 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 feels natural that little by little this secondary trading and activities will extend more and more to venture capital, real asset funds, and to countries outside of U.S., U.K., rest of the world. So right now, you know, emerging markets, growth funds don't have much activities on the secondary market, but I would expect this to, to change as well. So that could be a, a, a space to, to, to look out for, for people who want to see a bit where, where the growth might be. Absolutely. And I, again, I think it's going to be, we're going to see enormous growth. Um, you're right, it has primarily been focused on the US and in Europe, but I think we're certainly going to see that spread even further. And as you said, into different asset classes, including, you know, including credits, for example, emerging markets for sure. So I do think it's something to get involved in um, and to, to really immerse yourself into as much as possible to try and understand. There are so many dynamics going on between all the parties involved in these processes. And it's really, you know, it's really important to try and understand those processes um, and, 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 and get involved as much as possible um, at an early stage. Yeah, thank you so much, Saloni. It was, it was really fascinating. Um, this was uh, secondary laid bare. Don't forget to subscribe. Congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge.